This is InGoal Radio, the podcast. I'm Darren Millard, along with the co-founders of InGoal Magazine, David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. We are in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, but we continue to put out content via InGoal Radio, the podcast, InGoal Magazine, and InGoal Premium, a special segment coming your way on for InGoal Premium subscribers. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, plus, a retirement from the National Hockey League has nothing to do uh, with uh, COVID-19. But uh, we want to acknowledge a person that's stepping away from his playing days and update you uh, just out of the gate with what's happening from a National Hockey League perspective. Uh, Had a chance to speak with Bill Daly, exchange messages with him, and uh, here's some good news. Uh, I know that uh, we're all dealing with this pause, uh, both uh, on a sports perspective and a personal life uh, stage. But uh, Bill Daly told me that uh, even if it takes a couple of months, They are optimistic they will be back playing and present a Stanley Cup. So uh, we hear the extension in the uh, social distancing uh, deadlines, and that's been pushed back to the end of April. Guess what? Uh, The National Hockey League is aware of that. They're on board with that, and uh, they are optimistic uh, despite that, that even if it takes a couple of months, they're going to stick with it and try to present the Stanley Cup. Uh, You guys know, as we bring in Kevin and, uh, and David, are aware of the Olympics uh, being pushed back by a year. There's an impact and there's a synergy between the Olympics being pushed back to 2020, to 2021 from 2020 this summer, uh, and the National Hockey League. And that is NBC has the Olympics in the United States. And by uh, the Summer Olympic Games being pushed back a year, that opens up a bulk of programming in July and August. And NBC, being the rights holder of the National Hockey League, will need some programming. And if it happens and it uh, comes together, there's a spot for the National Hockey League. Uh, So just give you that little update uh, as I finally, I don't know how many minutes we are into this, but I'll allow you to talk. uh, Hutch, uh, there's some good news there. I think that's some some great news. We like to find some silver linings in these clouds. Uh, I'd be excited to see the Stanley Cup awarded this summer. Sounds like a really good opportunity, Darren, for the league as well to perhaps gain a little bit more exposure than they might otherwise with the NBC deal. I think that's uh, that's fantastic news. If there's one piece that's a little concerning to us, it's that uh, Kevin and I have always had a great opportunity in the summers to meet up with some of these guys when they're training and collect some of that great content we're putting up on premium now. And uh, it sounds like summer vacation for a lot of these guys might be in danger, right? Eh? Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but there may not be this traditional off-season. Well, there won't be a traditional off-season, but there may not be any type of uh, getting away to all your specialty seminars, uh, whether it's uh, forwards, defensemen, or in our case, uh, goaltenders, Woody. Well, I mean, the truth is these guys, for the most part, are off. Now, some of them, a lot of them skate in July, but they don't start getting into formal gatherings in in groups where we kind of track them down. So there's more than one sort of you know, take advantage of being in a place with multiple goaltenders at the same time, usually until August. So even if there's an abbreviated off season, there's probably still going to be some level of camps and guys training at some point, especially, you know, playoffs may be in July and August. We hope they are, um, but that doesn't include everyone, right? Not every goaltender. So other guys are going to have to stay on top of their game. So we'll just look at the bright side, hope that we're still able to have a Stanley Cup, cover some hockey, and get out to see some of these guys, some of these NHL goaltenders uh, in their off-season environments, uh, record more of these drills that, as Hutch said, we've been bringing to in-goal premium. We've got more in the works over the next couple of months, and 
you know, maybe play the odd round of golf with these guys. Uh, that would be really good to play any kind of uh, golf. There's been um, all kinds of scenarios played out where, where golf courses are operating with the cup a uh, half inch out of the hole. Uh, and any part of the uh, cup that uh, the ball touches, uh, that's considered made putt and uh, because they don't want anybody touching the, uh, the flag stick, right? There's, so there's all kinds of different things. Getting back to traditional golf, traditional training, traditional uh, environment in the hockey world, uh, which means uh, Cal Peterson will be pushing for the number one job with the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, he is our feature interview this week on In Gold Radio, the podcast. But before we get to that, from the, uh, the blossoming of a career, to the end of a, of a career, and uh, just a, a shout out to somebody that you guys both know very well, and Woody, uh, the, the retirement of Eddie Lack. Yeah, I got to play a small cameo in the, uh, the installment of videos that he tweeted out the other day, I guess, quote unquote, congratulating him on the retirement. I was told to <laughs> chirp, um, so I chirped pretty hard in my little segment. You roasted. Segment. Yeah, yeah, and that was, that was not without risk, because I tell you, speaking of golf and getting to play the odd round with these guys, Eddie has some video of one of the most horrific swings I've ever taken, and I know he's kept it on his phone, and I'm waiting for the day when I piss him off just enough that he makes that public, because I'm not sure I'd ever be able to live it down. But, um, you know, congratulations. I think uh, those of us behind the scenes thought this might be coming uh, when he took the year off, just knowing how bad the hip was and, and where his mindset was, but he took the year to make sure that he was sure um, and as he said, uh, the other day, I'm not sure if on the video or just privately, you know, he, he did end up back on the ice for a practice, uh, with Arizona state where he's doing some goalie coaching just in the past month or so. And it was, yeah, it was pretty obvious at that point to him that it just, it just wasn't going to happen. So, um, you know, it wasn't, it didn't end up being the career, uh, that I think, you know, myself predicted at a time when he was, he's the last goalie to lead this, the Vancouver Canucks to the Stanley cup playoffs. And at that point I was predicting you know, number one in his future in a long career. Maybe didn't get to that. Uh, but for a guy who was never drafted, it still ended up being a hell of a run. And, and as much as he did on the ice, like I said, last, last goalie to lead the Canucks to the playoffs, there were some good moments in there, 921 that year. Um, it was the personality off the ice and the person he was that I think made such a lasting impression, maybe even beyond what the career ended up being. And so, you know, uh, tough to see him end it. And yet, congratulations for having done it. And looking forward to what's next for him because he's one of our favorite people here at Ingle. And I know there's probably a lot of fans around uh, the NHL that feel the same way about Eddie Lack. I think uh, maybe we're going to be lucky and there's another silver lining here and he can get on the air with us a little bit and a little bit of that personality can be shared more than it has been in the past. Well, although it's been plenty. I was just going to say, uh, the sad part again about COVID is uh, the opportunity would have included some yeah. ice time and watching him get the coach down in Arizona State. We'd already talked about that, about getting down there and uh, getting some tips from him from the coaching side of things on the ice. And of course, trip to Arizona is not complete without a round of golf. So that would have been a double whammy. And we talked to him about being a guest at the now canceled Tendy Fest up here in May. So those are all things that'll have to be delayed. But maybe, you know, down the road, we can, we can revisit them both. Uh, tips from Eddie on the ice. And an opportunity for him to come back to Vancouver for Tendy Fest and uh, a fan base that still loves him. I saw that from the uh, the Instagram tweet as well for or Instagram tweet. Uh, get my two social media channels uh, mixed up, but uh, an Instagram me, post and a, and a tweet. I know, uh, but uh, the hockey shop uh, and source of sports uh, had the great picture with Eddie and uh, your relationship and his relationship with Ingle a magazine uh, goes uh, goes very very deep. Uh, what's he, 
you you mentioned the Arizona State University, but uh, Woody, what what are the plans for Eddie? Uh, he's still going to do that in a in a volunteer part time capacity. But I know I remember he was take he, he's basically moving into real estate. And I remember talking to him early in that rehab process from the hip surgery. He was he was reading books to take his certification and pass his certification while he was strapped to that machine. Remember we talked to him in the in the podcast about he had that yes. machine that actually moved his leg, you know. M- moved his leg around to help with the rehab. Well, he was actually reading some of the real estate books while he was doing that. So um, the personality that we love, I think it would be well suited to real estate. When you meet the guy, you can't help but love him. Um, He has a big heart. He's genuine. He's honest. And I would think that that would lend itself well uh, to the relation. I'd imagine real estate is is about building relationships and nobody built them uh, like Eddie. Nobody nurtured them like Eddie. And that's why he was so popular because he made those relationships and made sure that they were grounded and kept up and followed with them, even after he'd moved on from a city. The people that were important in his life, he, he keeps in touch with. So I, nothing but the best to him, and I think he'll be good in whatever he does. Uh, more availability to Ingle Magazine, Ingle Premium, uh, Ingle Radio, the podcast. And uh, you have uh, another avenue to get in touch with us as well. So Hutch, can you tell everybody about what we're going to be doing on April 1st? This is not, I repeat, a not a uh, April Fool's <laughs> joke, but on April 1st, uh, from 3 to 4 Pacific time, uh, Ingle Radio, the podcast, has a special presentation for our subscribers of Ingle Premium. Uh, we do. And in fact, I sort of thought of it as Woody's office hours, um, as we're staring at his office right now in that beautiful new Bauer ultrasonic gear. We had the thought that we'd like to bring a little bit more to our subscribers, the members over at Ingle Premium. And uh, obviously, every time we put out one of these reviews, it's sort of a a massive amount of work for us. And yet, uh, despite that, people always have many more questions. Um, The deeper they read about it, the the photos, the images they look at, make them wonder a little bit more. Uh, So we thought it'd be fun just to sort of hang out with folks if they want to learn a little bit more about the gear. Um, So we're hosting hosting a little meetup tomorrow online. And it's an opportunity for people to drop by and ask any questions that, that they want. Our thought was that it would revolve around that review. Uh, so if you'd like, you know, Woody to hold up the gear and show you something a little bit uh, that hasn't been been there or to clarify something from the review, he can do that. But at the same time, I'm going to be there. Uh, Darren, you're going to be with us. And if people just want to stop by and talk goaltending, it's an opportunity to do that tomorrow for an hour. And uh, I just think an interesting experiment to uh, have a little bit of a virtual meetup for the Ingoal Premium members and see, see where it leads, something I hope that we're able to do a little bit more in the future as well. And if you're listening to this after April 1st, you can still participate or get the uh, the information. Yeah, and I would even say, uh, you know, re- to resurrect something we haven't done in a while, if anybody has a question for that, uh, office hour tomorrow, that meetup tomorrow, and they're not able to be with us, uh, or as they're listening uh, to this podcast and they uh, maybe see that meetup online uh, later in the week, if they have any questions that they'd like to send along to be answered virtually, they could just do that through podcast at ingolmag.com. Can't believe how close you get to the microphone to do that. It's no know, social, somebody told no me it makes social you sound distancing better. there. No, there's not. Throw Somebody that told me it makes you sound out. more AM radio or something. I don't know. But you're the pro, Darren. You tell me. FM radio. <laughs> Nobody oh, wants to sound AM. <laughs> <laughs> Dad. <laughs> 
Oh, that's old school dad right there. Oh, boy. Uh, ham radio. Maybe that's uh, that's more like it. Uh, there so you what go. Do you, what, uh, what do you want to uh, talk about tomorrow and before we get into Cal? Well, I guess we don't have a gear segment anymore right now with uh, the hockey shop on a bit of a hiatus. So um, I'm just looking forward to, we can still have a gear segment here and this will be an extended gear segment. As Hutch said, you can talk about anything, but I'm looking forward to sort of going over this line, clarifying any questions. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Darren, is you know, a big part of the review is this new Stabila slide knee that Bowers come up with uh, for the ultrasonic pad. And it really is um, a major step for them. And I think a lot of people, when they read it, it was really hard to sort of, we, we wrote that it was fixed to the face of the pad, which of course, in some ways, every pad has a knee stack that's fixed to it. It's just most are stitched in. This is actually built in, integrated into, it's one piece. And maybe we didn't do a very good job in the review of, of, of making that crystal, crystal clear. But like it. No, you did. You did. It's just some of us are a little bit slower on the uptake. Well, I think, I think maybe too, because it's such a different concept. We all think, and, and, yeah. and, and different pads have different degrees of fix. Some that knee stack can get pretty floppy. Some, um, you know, it's pretty rigid as is. But this thing is locked. Like there is no moving it. I'll show people on the webinar tomorrow. I can grab that knee stack, grab that face of the pad and pull as hard as I can. It's not moving. The concept being that, you know, even if you get into a butterfly or you drop and you're not landing right in the middle, it's not a perfect butterfly. You're not going to have rotation problems. It's still going to hit. It's still going to flush, seal the ice. And it's going to give you that sort of perfect rotation that you want out of your pad when you're dropping into a butterfly or moving. And uh, it was interesting. It's, It's an interesting concept. I think Bauer will tell you, not every goalie is going to love it. You're going to be able to, you know, not everyone's going to want this on every pad, but it's a really good option for some guys. Some of the testers we've had really like it out of the gate. Uh, Certainly Andre Vasilevsky, the story there is um, the pro rep came in with two sets of power. He actually, he came in with a set of, a set of ultrasonic with him. Andre saw it, took a look at it and said, for my next order, why don't you make me two, one with, one without. There was no intention of pushing it on him, but he said, I want to give it a go. He tried it one day in practice and had it in a game the next day. So for some goalies, they're going to really love this. Curtis McElhenney, who we featured in the review, has saw how good the rotation was, how the pad hit the ice and flushed every time. And he's considering ordering it for his next set because he was so impressed with how the knee performed. Uh, it, it's different. It, it's a different step. And so obviously in the review, we talk about, you know, as soon as you improve the seal on a pad, your next question is, well, is that going to negate the sliding? Is that going to make the sliding worse? Because the better the seal, the more the pads on the ice as you're pushing. In theory, the more resistance and friction there is um, to that slide. Well, Bauer took some steps there. The way they added the pillow, the way they offset that inner calf plate, um, staggered it at the edge, and then, and then basically provided a skinnier area that's going to make contact with the ice to reduce that drag. Uh, those are all elements we can go over. I think we did a pretty good job, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think we explained it pretty well in the review. Um, but if there's any questions people have, well, I'll have the pads with me. I'll have the gloves with me. We can go over some of those visual aspects. Um, their their um, fine uh, uh, tune uh, strapping and, and their version of the professor strap will show you how that works. Um, there's a lot of good innovations here. The gloves probably the best one I think they've made. And, and, and the other element that was in the review that I don't think gets talked about enough, and uh, we heard this from Craig Anderson when he switched over um, this season and tried it for the first time, the way the puck pops off the blocker. For all the talk about active rebounds uh, off the pads and, and how a lot of goalies really like that element, 
the way that the puck just rockets off this blocker. And so you're you're rarely leaving any loose change in tight and dangerous areas. You can get it all the way to the boards, get it out to the zone. And if you're better than me, you could probably actually direct a few breakouts with this thing. Uh, yeah, and some goaltenders have done that uh, this year. There's, It's sort of becoming back in vogue again where you kind of knock it out uh, purposely. That's all coming up on April 1st. Uh, if you want to join us, uh, do so uh, for Ingle Premium subscribers. And if it's April, after April 1st, you'll be able to find it uh, on the Ingle Premium section. Our feature interview this week, Cal Peterson of the Los Angeles Kings, uh, who's uh, now put himself in a position to challenge for the number one goaltending spot with the Los Angeles Kings battling Jonathan Quick. And uh, he uses a much different uh, approach with his equipment. You'll hear all about that with uh, Woody as they, they discuss uh, his Vaughn commitment and his Vaughn gear, how he likes his equipment, but also his rise up through the ranks uh, from minor hockey to college uh, to now in the National Hockey League and the challenges of being a Southpaw. It is our feature interview on In Goal Radio, the podcast, Cal Peterson with Kevin Woodley. All right, so we're we're joined now. Um, this is our this is the new world order. This is what we're looking at. Everything is going to be online, which has the disadvantages. I, I didn't get a chance to see in person coming into Rogers Arena, which I think makes both of us and a lot of hockey fans sad. But Cal Peterson joining us now um, from Iowa. He's back home in Iowa um, to chat a little bit about his season, his first couple of years of pro. Uh, but first, Cal, I actually wanted to go back, and this has become. Probably a little bit of almost a cliche here on the Ingo Radio podcast, uh, but I love to start here because the stories inevitably this. Sometimes they're the same, but sometimes we get some unique ones. How did it start for you? Where did the passion for this position start? Yeah. Um, well, my uh, well, first off, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it's fun to kind of talk hockey when there's not a lot going on. Um, but yeah, I first started. My dad was a goalie. Um, he played Division three um, for Bethel College and uh, in Minneapolis. Um, so he was always kind of around hockey his whole life. Um, and he kind of originally didn't want me to be a, be a goalie, so I started as a forward and, um, you know, was kind of enamored with the gear as we all are. And my mom was like, hey, you got to give him a chance in there. And I started and my first game, I think I gave up like seven or eight goals. It was when we were back to using those like blue pucks or whatever, the little lightweight ones. So. I wasn't very good and that's kind of where it all started. And, um, but I definitely wouldn't say I was a natural, um, from the beginning. Okay. That's funny because that's, that's one of the less common themes. It's usually an older brother, a love for the gear, which you had, but we have had a few of those, whether it's Braden Holtby, where dad played goal. Frederick Anderson is another one I think of his dad played professionally and they always or generally have a little hesitation letting their son get started in net. Did you have to win him over? At what point did you convince him? What age were you allowed to finally take that turn? Oh, well, I mean, like I said, I think it was my mom that, um, you know, was the one that kind of put her foot down. It was like, hey, you know, it's it's not you playing. You have to let him get a chance to get his feet wet and do what he wants. And um, so, I mean, I guess in one regard, it, uh, I can I can understand it after playing um, for as long as I have, I guess, so far. You know, you don't really want your kid to – maybe be a part of all the stresses that come with, you know, being a goalie in the last line of defense and all that. But at the same time, um, it's, it's put us on kind of a whirlwind journey. So I'm sure he wouldn't have it any other way now. Now, did you, was it because your dad played? Was that where the seeing him play? Did that make you want to be a goaltender from a young age? 
Yeah, I think that was part of it. Um, you know, even when I was playing forward, it was something that we were kind of always talking about the goalies just naturally. And, um, and then again, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, you know, enamored with the pads and, and, you know, my favorite, my two favorite players were Patrick Waugh and Marty Berdour. And, um, so, I mean, even when I was playing forward and defense, like that was who I wanted to be. And so, um, I got my, I, I convinced my dad, you know, once I wanted to be goalie for sure, we can switch out of the house league and got a pair of co-hosts just like, uh, just like, uh, Wa did in Colorado and, uh, went from there. Now, d- did you have any troubles from a gear perspective? It's interesting. I, I wasn't quite able to get a hold of you in time for my weekly column uh, at NHL.com on mask, but this, this week's subject was kind of guys full right. And mm-hmm. we've seen a decline here. Um, in the past couple of years, two years ago, there were, I think, 46 starts for goalies who were full right. That's the lowest since 1963-64. And back in the 80s, there'd be like an average of you know 10 to 12 goalies, 300 starts for goalies full right. And we're into the hundreds and, and under 100 for the last three seasons. One of the things that some guys talked to me about was, you know, maybe the association gear when they first started only came with a left catching glove. Did you have any troubles in Iowa sort of getting the gear to, I'm assuming you're left-handed if you're catching with your right. Walk me through that process. Yeah. Um, I mean, first is, you know, being in Iowa, it's not even the easiest to get goalie gear to begin with, even if I was right-handed too. Um, so I guess I can see where, you know, whether it's price or availability. I mean, a lot of times you'd go into those goalie shops or hockey shops and, um, you know, they wouldn't have a, a right-handed catching glove. It would only be for, for the lefties. And so it was kind of one of the things where if I wanted to get gear, it was something that I kind of had to order almost like straight from the factory to do or have, you know, goalie monkey, you know, try and get one in from somewhere. Um, so I can definitely see that as kind of being a barrier to, to guys, you know, being the other hand. Um, so I was, it was kind of one of those things where once I got my gear, um, or at least my gloves, you know, I was kind of sticking with those for maybe a little bit longer than other guys. Cause you just, you never know when you're going to come across another lefty set where you can uh, throw those on, especially sticks too. sticks were another, yeah, big challenge. I mean, I, that's probably even more rare is to see a, a right-handed goalie stick. I, I actually forgot about that. Actually, I'm now kind of kicking myself because the column's filed and it's, <laughs> it's done and gone. And I didn't really talk and get in depth about sticks, but it was interesting because Michael Hutchinson, Talked to him for the column when they came through town. Last team we had through here before the shutdown. Pause, pardon me. And it was him and Pavel Francouz or Francouz, mm-hmm. two right catching goalies on the same team. And he talked about what a novelty it was because they could, you know, Frankie was trying his sticks. He wanted to try a few things. They're playing with each other's gloves. And as a right catching goalie, you almost never get that opportunity, especially at oh. the pro level. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the only time you get to, you know, try another guy's glove is maybe when you're just sticking around and, you know, you can switch hands and see what it's like to be on the other side. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, like I said, every time you go into a sports shop, it's all left-handed goalie sticks. And if you find the odd right one, it's like, you know, it would be all composite and then like an old wooden shearwood or something that's like a super small paddle. So it's, like I said, it was kind of, whenever we came across sports shops that had a righty stick, kind of regardless of the size, we, you know, jumped on it, you know, kind of as fast as we could. Okay. So, um, what was the get you, you mentioned the set. So was Coho to start, walk us through your gear evolution over the years. Was there a, was that the set, the Patrick Waugh set that helped you fall in love with the position? Was there one you gravitated towards and 
you know, even in your Vons now, custom graphics, are you always going to be a guy that wants to have that special look? Yeah. Um, yeah, I started with the co-host, um, you know, got him sent to the only kind of hockey sports shop in Waterloo and got him there. I remember the day well and um, got those. And then I kind of, I think, transferred into Vons. Um, I think I had the legacies, first legacies when I was younger and kind of coming up and then um, did a little brief stint in Reebok, um, but went back to, and then had a little stint when I was, uh, I played actually junior varsity high school hockey in Waterloo, which you can imagine is, is not the best competition, but that year I wore uh, Simmons, which were kind of, uh, I guess, I don't want to say knockoff, but, you know, kind of replica Vons, as you can maybe say. And so I wore those for a year. Um, and then when I got in juniors, I was kind of a little bit of a rebel because the the league was sponsored by Reebok and CCM. And I was, you know, so set on wearing my Vons that, you know, I was taking logos off the Vons. And I think one, uh, one of the years I even stuck a Reebok sticker on a pair of, of Vons, you know, just to get by. And, you know, I think I remember Mike Vaughn wasn't very happy with that and neither were the CCM guys. So I was kind of stuck in a hard place. Um, but then ever since that, I've been straight Vaughn all the way through college. And, um, you know, the way they make their pads, I just think, you know, I like the, the human touch that they make. Everything is handmade. And I think the quality really can't be beat. And um, I have a great relationship with those guys. So every time I get a new set, I know exactly what I'm getting. Well, that would have made Dusty Emu happy, but when you when you it, as we move on later on, when you get to the Kings, that would have made him happy. I know he's a big Vaughn guy. What do you like? Like, well, how do you like your pads to feel? Because obviously, playing with Quickie, I mean, those things look like you could take them like a xylophone and probably <laughs> you know squeeze them down to like a foot high. They are yeah. so broken in and so soft. Where are you on that scale in terms of? You know, liking, what do you like about a Vaughn pad? Do you have yours that soft? Do you like the connection? What is it that separates it for you? Yeah, I mean, I was always a guy that was, um, especially when I was at Notre Dame, I was kind of always a couple series behind um, what the newest pad were. And um, the guys at Vaughn were always kind of, you know, get me to try new stuff. And I think I was still like in the T5500 glove. I used that for like eight years. And then um, I was in an older velocity model. And then once I got to pro, um, I got to one of the newer velocities with kind of the carbon fiber um, inlay inside, but I still wanted the soft um, boot brake. So I, I actually shortened my boot brake an inch and then add an inch to the top. So I have a smaller boot brake and I like that really soft stuff. Um, so I get it like that and then I try and get the pad as soft stuff as I can, um, you know, without, you know, taking away the kind of carbon fiber aspect of it to keep it lighter. Um, but I mean, like, like you said, compared to quickie and, um, you know, Jack Campbell and here's here. I mean, those guys are, are getting their pads that I'm pretty sure quickie used in college and, uh, you know, he's getting them and, uh, throwing them in the steamer for weeks on end to get them soft. And, and I look, you know, like I'm a guy that's just wearing them fresh out of the box. So it's kind of changed that way. Um, now that, you know, you kind of have gear more readily available. And, uh, you, you know, it's funny, you said the boot, is that just like, do you like to, one thing I find that guys like Vaughn, whether it's, whether it's as soft as quickie and can and Jack, or, you know, a little stiffer, 
they crave that connection to the pad, that feeling like your yeah. leg is part of it versus, you know, other guys want a pad that's looser fitting and it sort of moves around the leg. Is that, is that fair description of how you like it to feel? Yeah. I was just going to say the same thing. I was, you know, the one thing that probably all, you know, Quickie and I have the same as we, we crave that kind of connection to the pad. And that's something that I've always, you know, liked about Vaughn all the way up, um, is that connection. And, um, you know, you keep the flexibility of the pad, you know, without, um, you know, taking away any of the, the quality materials. And, um, so yeah, I mean that, that part I really like about it. I'm not, I'm still a little old school. I mean, I don't wear knee pads at all. Um, I wear, <laughs> I wear those, uh, the thigh wrap with, um, a little bit like of a knee wrap that kind of covers the top of the knee. And then I wear, um, the G form, uh, pads that you pull over your knees. So I actually don't, I mean, like I don't wear the normal knee pads, but basically I have the same coverage that way. Yeah. Hey, now there are a few guys like that. You say you were laughing because my eyes popped open because, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. those of us who are older with narrower butterflies, we shudder at the thought. But when you're young and flexible and those pads close that five hole down because you got such a wide butterfly, you're okay. I know Doobie, uh, Devin Dubnik was a guy that didn't have them. There's been a few other guys over the years that have used the same thigh wrap. I think Carter Hutton, we did a gear yeah. segment with him and same thing. And nice to see on the, uh, the G form, we actually way back in the day with Tim Thomas and Carey Price when they first started wearing those under their knee pads. I remember writing that article and it, it kind of took off from there. So nice to see that there's still guys that are using it in the league. It's, it's a good sleeve, that little padded sleeve under there. Yeah, it's great. I'm probably, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, when I first, uh, saw it, cause they used to have the G form shirts as well. Yep. Pretty sure I had that. And I think I, the first time I saw it was either was when Tim Thomas and Tuca were both wearing them. And so, I mean, I'm sure I saw it through one of your outlets and, um, you know, tried it out because I just hated, you know, again, going back to wanting a connection with the pad. I just didn't like how bulky knee pads you just, you know, felt like, you know, you just never were connected with the pad. And this was kind of a way that, um, you know, I could get that connection without kind of sacrificing uh, protection. Okay. We're definitely going to be clipping that. (laughs) Read it it in goal. Yeah, I think you might have to voice over Bauer because I'm pretty sure they own them now or something like that. Oh, well, so. you can do it. I mean, Bauer does have a product and um, they make a knee sleeve, but they discontinued. I heard there's some more coming out. They did. You're right, though. Eventually, after we wrote that and there was a big run on it in hockey shops, they did buy the rights to pour on. But of course, mm-hmm. G-Form still makes it. Um, G-Form offers it for, you know, sort of uh, whatever X game type stuff. And, and other goalies, including Carey Price, are still using it. So. Um, yeah, yeah, it's st- it still has its place. Hey, listen, man, we could talk gear all day, but I want to talk a little bit about the career. Um, what led you to Notre Dame for starters, coming out of the NAHL and the USHL, and 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 why Notre Dame? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten this question a lot, and I mean, the answer is has always been the same. And I think, especially maybe after leaving there a couple of years, you realize kind of how special of a place that is, and you know, that's something that I could go on and on about. But I mean, that I had a couple. Uh, I had a couple of visits lined up when I was with Waterloo and USHL and, um, uh, my agent or advisor at the times from Chicago, he had a good relationship with, with the guys at Notre Dame. And, um, I went for an unofficial visit actually, um, paid my way there and, um, took, you know, took a visit of the campus. Um, you know, and it's, it's world-class. It's, uh, it's kind of everything I wanted and they have such a commitment, you know, to the sports side of things that, you know, the different buildings for each different sport was, was incredible. And then that obviously led to the, um, to Compton, um, which I mean, to this day is one of the best drinks I've played in. And, 
Um, I just saw kind of the commitment that, you know, the university made to the hockey team. And then, you know, on top of that, um, the coaching staff, you know, Jeff Jackson really was kind of, you know, both my Coley coach and my head coach. So we shared a pretty special, uh, pretty special, you know, relationship together. And when I first met him, you know, he looked me in the eye and was like, you know, you're going to, you're going to get what you earn when it comes to playing time. Cause I was, you know, looking for an opportunity to play as a freshman. And, and to me, that was all I needed. And, um, um, I went out to the car with my dad and I was like, Hey, I want to sign right now. Like, Oh, this is my school. And he was like, all right, well, let's think about it on the way home. And right when I pulled in the driveway, I didn't even go inside. I grabbed my phone and called coach Jackson and said that, uh, I'm coming to Notre Dame. It's, uh, to this day, I think the best decision I've ever made. Obviously I know Jeff as a, as a head coach, but I didn't realize there was a goaltending background and that's my ignorance. So he's got, he's got a, a goalie coaching or goalie position playing background that, that helped sort of. Because because not sometimes having a head coach that played the position, I'm not going to name names at the NHL level over the years, but it's not always a good thing. Yeah, um, he played when he was uh, coming up, I think, through college. I want to say, um, so he's always had it, and he's he's one of those guys that you know he lives and breathes hockey, right? And um, I think when he, uh, you know, when he didn't have a goalie coach, I think he really kind of put it on himself to learn. Um, you know, the new things, the new trends, the new terms that were going on. Um, so I think he went to, I think he went to Mike Valley's symposium a couple times up there in Madison. Um, got a lot from that. He's, like I said, he's, you know, never afraid to call, call different goalie coaches and kind of be like, you know, help me understand kind of new terms or new techniques that are going on. You know, really the main thing is, I mean, he was just, even as a head coach, he was a guy that, I could talk to and, um, you know, he, you know, was no dummy when it came to hockey and what he expected for goaltenders. So, you know, whatever he lacked, maybe on the technical side, he was there to kind of make up with, you know, teaching me how to, you know, to win games on my own and to be a closer and to be a guy that makes the right save at the right time for your team. Well, I mean, and talk about kudos. I mean, a lot of coaches just frankly plead ignorance when it comes to the position so how refreshing to find a guy that wants to go out and learn about it because those tools are available but not a lot of exercise them so man major applause from the goalie union for uh mm-hmm. for taking those steps i i would have been at one of them those symposiums so i'm actually now sad i didn't get a chance to meet him um that first year i gotta ask you but i mean there's probably a lot that goes into that rookie year and it was a heck of a rookie year but it didn't end the way you wanted but the longest game in college history in the playoffs 87 saves five overtimes you had you ever had anything even remotely like that heading into it and what like i remember covering luongo's first playoff game in the nhl here in vancouver and that was a four overtime effort against the dallas stars and there were ivs flowing like crazy after that what's that like for you your first time in the playoffs in the ncaa and you go five ot's you know, it was crazy. Um, I think at the time it was kind of one of those things where you're like, you know, here's the first overtime, you know, you kind of really don't think about it. You just, you know, are kind of taking it five minutes at a time, I guess, playing it. And then after, I would say probably after the second overtime was over and we were going in triple overtime, I was like, you know, this is kind of unique, I guess. And then it kind of, you know, kept, you know, I guess snowballing into it by, you know, when we were going into the fifth overtime, I was like, man, what is going on? I mean, I think it was almost already like midnight or a little bit past maybe even. And, um, there were barely any fans even there, you know, probably just parents. And 
it, it, the, the thing was, is, you know, the refs kind of stopped calling penalties. So it was more so just, you know, a, a guy would come down, shoot the puck, maybe there'd be a second chance and then it would go down to the other end. And there weren't a lot of whistles, but, you know, it was just kind of a cool experience to be a part of, you know, even though we lost, um, you know, but the thing is too, you know, we had to come back and, you know, play that, that next night, um, you know, to keep our season alive and won that game and then had to play the next night again. So it was, it was like a, I think altogether it was like six games in three days or something crazy like that. So that we were able to do. So it's a, it's an even better memory, you know, by the fact that we were able to kind of win the next two games and, and, uh, and move on to the next round. I was going to say the next night was actually the same night, given how long it went. Yeah. Same, yeah. Same was, day. Crazy. That, that crazy, is, crazy thing. I, I remember being a writer at four overtimes. It took me two days to recover. I couldn't imagine being a player <laughs> in it. Um, I had a great sophomore season, Mike Richter finalist. Junior year, though, the only one, the part I wanted to ask you specifically about was not to tie this back to Luongo, but we don't see much of it in the NHL since him. Captaincy. You're the, MV, you're the MVP as a sophomore. Like I said, Mike Richter award finalist uh, as the best uh, NCAA goaltender. And then you get named captain. What's, what's that like, having that responsibility? Is it like the NHL? You can't actually wear a C? Um, how does that work as a goaltender? And do you see leadership is something a goaltender can provide with a C or without. Yeah. Um, so I guess the unique thing about college is, um, the goalies can actually wear a C physically on their Jersey. Um, That's which cool. is, it, yeah, which is cool. Um, you know, so that part was really cool. And, um, yeah, coach Jackson kind of going into my junior year, um, we didn't have a huge senior class and he was like, you know, he brought it up kind of at the end of the year, sophomore year. He's like, Hey, would you be uncomfortable being in this position, um, as captain? Um, and I was like, no, I mean, you know, I think it'd be a great honor. I think it's kind of something that's hard to pass up, you know, an opportunity to, to, to be in that position and, you know, be somebody that guys look up to. And, um, so I was, I was ready to kind of run with the opportunity and, you know, once he made it official, it was, it was a unique situation, obviously, because, you know, I'm not somebody that can go talk to the refs or I'm not on the bench. So um, it was a lot more of, you know, leading by example, kind of work ethic wise and, you know, keeping guys calm and, and making sure that, you know, I was kind of a, a fixture on the back end that they could look to and rely upon. And, and then obviously, you know, the way that you act off the ice. But I think what helped a lot, too, is, you know, we had a lot of really good players in my junior class with me. So I had two guys, you know, Jake Evans and Andrews Bjork, they're both in the NHL right now that, that were my assistant captains with me. And, you know, they, it was kind of leadership by, by team, I guess, you know, by collection, you know, whereas I was, I guess, kind of, you know, the overall leader, but they were ones talking to the refs and, you know, making sure people were right on the bench. And so I think without having two guys like that with you, it probably wouldn't have worked as well as it did. That's a, that's a, it's a pretty incredible honor. Like, uh, were there examples of their times during that experience that you still carry with you, whether it's the responsibility or how to sort of, you know, how you carry yourself as a teammate in the, you know, in coming up into the American league and even now in the NHL, not that anybody's looking at you for leadership in your first couple of years in the NHL, but does it, it have a positive carry forward for you as a goaltender? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, it's a huge honor. I mean, I'm, very blessed to, to have even had the opportunity, especially at a school like Notre Dame. But I think, you know, one of the things that's overlooked is, you know, I think goaltending just in itself kind of has, um, 
you know, a leadership quality to it. Um, you know, I think Jonathan Quick is, you know, probably a guy too that would at least wear a letter, you know, on any given team. It's just, I think, you know, they're, they're the guys that have to be the hardest working guys. Um, they're the guys that, you know, have to keep things calm on the back end. There's guys that can't show too much emotion in the wrong times. And I think, you know, there's something about being the last line of defense that, um, you know, I think a real leader wants to be in. So, I mean, I think it's kind of something that's overlooked, but if you asked probably a lot of guys in the NHL, they, they would say, you know, one of the best leaders on the team is, is most likely their goalie. That's a good point. Now transition to pro and obviously there's a switch in teams drafted by the Sabres, but because you played three seasons in the NCAA, you, you had a choice. Um, what, uh, what, what led you to the Kings? What, what led you to make that decision? Yeah. So, um, when I left my junior year, um, you know, with the CBA, I was kind of awarded the opportunity to be able to, um, I guess, look at all my options. And, um, it wasn't really any one thing that, um, I didn't like about the Buffalo situation. I just thought, you know, for myself, it would be best to look at every single situation and pick the best one that, that worked for me. And, and I was going through the whole process being like, you know, I might end up just going to Buffalo but I at least wanted to see what is out there make sure that I was making the right decision and kind of do my due diligence. And the Kings were just a team, you know, I saw what they were doing with Jack Campbell. Um, you know, I saw the the kind of goaltending development they had with Billy Ranford and Dusty. And um, it was just one of those teams that looked to me like they had a really solid you know, history of developing goalies to start in the AHL and turn into full-time NHL goalies. And, you know, the way that I look at it is it maybe wasn't the quickest path to the NHL, you know, on the depth chart, but I was going to put, you know, my eggs into the basket of um, being as developed as possible. So when I got that shot at whatever time it was, you know, I was going to stick in the NHL. I wasn't going to be you know, not ready and get my shot and then get overpassed. I wanted to be completely ready to stay in the NHL when I got the opportunity. And I think going to LA kind of afforded me that opportunity. Yeah, a lot of goalies have told me over the years, biggest jump for them is not necessarily to the NHL, but it's from, you know, a lot of goalies will say from junior to the AHL to pro first year pro. I'm not, I, I don't, I haven't talked to as many college guys, but I'm guessing same thing. Like, has that been the bit, was that the biggest jump that first year pro heading from Notre Dame to, uh, to Ontario with the rain in the AHL? Yeah, it was a big jump. Um, you know, I think just more so, I mean, you're playing a lot more games. Um, you know, I think college, you have the benefit of you play two games on the weekend and then you kind of have the week off to prepare for the next two games. And, um, you know, in the AHL, it's kind of every day and, you know, sometimes travel isn't, um, you know, the best situation and, and you kind of have to grind through some things that are out of your control. But I mean, I think, you know, it, it kind of gets, you know, maybe the AHL gets a little bit of a bad rap because it's, you know, you're not in the NHL, it's a little bit below, but I mean, I think in a lot of regards, um, there's parts of the AHL that are more challenging to goaltenders than even in the NHL. And, um, so I think, you know, sometimes if you find yourself, um, you know, on a team that isn't as strong defensively or gives up a lot, you know, it, it, there can be some pretty long nights. Um, so I think that part, you know, probably mentally is the biggest jump. I was going to say there's, we've had goalies for a lot of years talk to us about how the NHL, they don't want to say it in a way that sounds disrespectful at all, but the game can be easier 
at the NHL level because it's more structured. Guys are, there's just less mistakes in front of you. Guys are where they're supposed to be. They more often than not make the play they're supposed to make. It's a little more predictable, if that's a fair term. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you know, it's not to obviously discount the NHL at all or anything like that. It's just, you know, there's, um, you're just kind of forced in different situations. You know, there, you might get fewer situations in the NHL or fewer odd man rushes or fewer, you know, wide open shots. But when those guys get that opportunity, you know, they're, they're hitting smaller corners than maybe guys in the AHL. Um, but like I said, I mean, I had a great opportunity to play a lot of games in the AHL and get a lot of experience, a lot of playoff experience too. And I think that has been a, been a huge part of, you know, giving, getting me, you know, to be comfortable at the NHL level. Okay. Now, speaking of the NHL level, you get that call up in your second season pretty early on, some injuries with the Kings, and you had pretty immediate success. Your first night, you come in relief against original six franchise, Toronto Maple Leafs. You get your first um, start. I think your first start was actually Chicago, and yeah. you won that one. And then a couple games later against the Blues, your first shutout. Like You had success right away. What was the toughest part of that adjustment, of that stretch, of that run? Was it just... How were you able to look as calm as you did? Was it like the duck underwater or did did you just feel comfortable at that level? You know, I think the thing that helped is, um, you know, actually the first game I got got called up, I was backing up that Toronto game and I got in basically right after the first period. So I kind of got my feet wet immediately. And is it no time to think? Does that help? Yeah, no time to think. Um, Yeah, I think, I think actually about a minute and a half into when I went in, Toronto jumped on a four minute power play. So I kind of got thrown into the fire right away, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's more so just the confidence wise. I mean, I always kind of inside knew that, you know, I could play at this level, but you can't really know until you're kind of under the bright lights and, and making the saves. And I think that first game, you know, that first half game that I was just able to get a couple saves under my belt and, you know, be like, you know, Hey, I can, I can maybe play at this level. I think that was good. And it was kind of, you know, the snowball effect. I had a, had a really special game in in Chicago, obviously in front of, in front of friends and family. And I think after that, you know, I kind of had the confidence that I can play at this level. And, um, I think that was something that I kind of carried with me throughout the whole thing. Now, how tough was it after though? Everybody gets healthy and just based on numbers, not based on performance, because you performed incredibly in that first stint, but the numbers dictate that you go back to the American hockey league and a team that, you know, I, I'll use my words, not your words. I'm guessing was probably not quite as, I mean, a, a bit of a tougher spot in terms of, you know, not a criticism of the team, but just what you're presented with in front of you defensively. Um, how, how tough was it to take that step back both that year and then at the start of this season, knowing that you had built that confidence at the NHL, but you had to wait for another opportunity? Because I've talked to guys over the years, you know, whether it's 20 years ago or a couple of years ago, sometimes it's tough to take that step back. Yeah, um, it definitely was a challenge. I mean, I think probably the biggest thing is, you know, I felt like I had done enough in my stint to, you know, to warrant an opportunity to be up there full time. Um, but I definitely understood the situation. You know, the, the, the only reason I got the opportunity, obviously, was because of injuries and those guys were going to get healthy. Um, so, I mean, it was, I would say, you know, the confidence of being able to play at that level helped um, maybe at first when I came down. Um, 
but you know, as you kind of roll on the season, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're kind of waiting for the next call and you're waiting for, Hey, when am I going to get my chance? Um, again. Um, and so I think that was probably, you know, the, the year, I guess, I don't know, maybe the year and a half that, um, you know, between call-ups, I guess, was probably one of the more challenging times I've had. Um, in terms of, you know, you know, you had your success in the NHL um, and you, you know, when you're down the AHL, you're almost expected to do more and you're expected to to play at that level. So I kind of held myself as at a high expectation um, for each game. But I really, you know, utilized that time to, I think, make myself kind of even more polished for the next time that it came, the, you know, the next call. And, and I guess that's probably the most challenging thing is you never know when it's going to be. And it's usually when you don't even expect it. So I was kind of going through day by day, trying to get a little bit better. So then when that call came, um, it was going to be a permanent call and I wasn't going to go back. Can you give us an example of one or two things? You don't have to give away too much, but obviously goalies. So when they say working on polishing a few things, I mean, you're already at that level. You've had that success in the NHL. What kind of things are you looking at tightening? You know, I think one of the things when I went down is like I said, um, you know, I think skating has been one of the things that I've kind of prided myself on, on as one of my strengths. And um, anytime that I can kind of, arrive to different situations on my feet and hold my edges I think is a positive and so when I was down the AHL sometimes you know you can't you know I would want to commit to an opportunity where a guy would have a wide open shot sometimes you know they'd throw it back across the net or find another guy and so I really worked hard at at being able to arrive on my feet and you know to give myself an opportunity to not be locked into a certain situation and to you know, be dynamic enough to be able to react to a different situation. And, um, you know, when I've gotten up to the, to the NHL, one of the things I really wanted to work on with Billy is, uh, is behind the net play He's kind of got a unique sort of, uh, way of doing things, you know, looking over a dominant shoulder. And that was something that he really wanted me to, to continue to work on. And it's kind of become just second nature now. And, and it's given me, a bit of a foundation and a plan for when the puck's behind the net, you know, knowing what I have covered and, you know, knowing where the threats are going to be. So that was one thing. And then um, one of the things Dusty helped me a bunch on with too was puck handling. And once I got kind of more comfortable at the pro level, I've been able to, you know, read things a little bit better and have a little bit more confidence making the plays. And um, so that's one thing I'm kind of always constantly working on. And uh, he was one that kind of, started that whole uh, progression. Okay. So whether it's Dusty or Matt Millar this year, how much do you lean on a goalie coach to help you focus on that process when the numbers might not be what you expect? Not through any fault of your own, but that's just the environment you're in. There's, there's, there's different opportunities, different scoring chances, different levels. If there's one thing I've learned and try to convey whenever I'm on sort of outside the goalie world talking to media, it's that, you know, without that sort of shot context quality or shot quality context, none of those numbers mean anything. But goalies at every level, the NHL guys, NHL guys who have proven, they'll tell me, you know, you can go through a slump and if you start to focus on the numbers rather than the process, you go back and look at it on video and it's like, yeah, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Mm-hmm. Did you lean on that? Did, were those guys helpful in terms of recognizing that, hey, like sometimes you can't help those, the pucks, it just goes in sometimes and not getting too focused on numbers. Yeah. Um, that was a big kind of theme, um, that started with Dusty and then, and then Maddie, um, carried with that, you know, just, 
the whole time is I wanted to kind of stick to my game plan and stick to the things that I knew would work in the NHL. And I, like I said, you know, sometimes you can, I didn't want to deviate away from my game plan to try and cheat on different opportunities, you know, in order to, you know, maybe you make two more backdoor saves than maybe you would, but you know, you give up a short side goal um, or two. And so that was something that, you know, there were games that I would get done and, you know, maybe we would lose five to two or four to two or four to one. And I'd come back and be like, you know, I, I wouldn't play a single goal any different. And I think that was kind of probably one of the challenges, but one of the, the growing things is just sticking to, you know, my template and the things that make me successful. And, and Dusty and Maddie did a great job of kind of, you know, keeping me, I guess, sane in a way and keeping me continuing to work on my game and not just look at the numbers and the box scores to determine, you know, whether I was doing the right thing or not. And, uh, but it's hard. I mean, as a goalie, I think if you ask anybody, I mean, those are kind of, you know, the, what the outside world judges your performances on, you know, whether they have context or not, but it's still kind of the way that you get judged. So I think there's definitely pride involved in those numbers and whenever they're not where you want to be, it, it kind of makes you grip the stick a little harder, kind of add a little bit more frustration. So um, I can definitely uh, understand those, uh, those challenges as well. Well, I like, Hey, I've heard it from everyone right up to guys who are soon to be in the hall of fame. So it's definitely, you're not alone in that one, but I could imagine it's doubly so when you've had that success at the NHL level. Uh, last one quickly, the, the relationship in that organization, you talked about as a reason you picked them whether it's Matt Millar now working with Billy, Dusty working with Billy. Um, Dusty, when he was there, I know he'd be up at times with the big club. There seemed to just be, I don't know if camaraderie is the right word, but there was a synergy at both mm-hmm. levels with the goalie department. Um, how beneficial is that, that you, when you get there this year, you've already built that relationship with Billy and you know that him and Matt are on the same page and him and Dusty before? Like, where's the payoff there? Like, do you, is that a, is there a tangible benefit to you coming into the NHL for the first time last year and again this year being a part of that synergy? Yeah, um, I think probably the, the, the thing that helped a lot is I would say it's kind of like a well-oiled machine. You know, every, everybody's kind of got their place, whether it's, you know, kind of Billy at the top overseeing things and then Dusty and Maddie at the developmental level. And I think they never kind of, left things up to, um, interpretation, I guess I want to say, you know, it was always the two guys that were in the NHL are going to be in the NHL and they're going to be successful. And the guys that are in the AHL obviously have that opportunity, but there's kind of a clear cut and dry, you know, way to doing it. And I just, you know, and I appreciate the competition side. I mean, I think every goalie that I've run into with Quickie and, and Jack Campbell and myself and Budai, you know, we're all extremely competitive and, um, you know, push each other to be, you know, better than the next guy if it's just in a drill or if it's in a game or something like that. And I think that's something that's pushed everybody's game to the next level. And so I guess it's, it's kind of breeding healthy competition, you know, while having Dusty and Billy and uh, Maddie there, you know, tweaking. And I mean, I just, I, I can't, you know, I'm obviously biased in a way, but, you know, the way that, the progression that they have of coming into the AHL and getting their reps in and making sure you know how to win hockey games in the regular season and playoffs and putting yourselves in those situations. And then, you know, when the right time comes, giving you opportunity in NHL, I think is, you know, something that, you know, was maybe hard to understand at the time, but now I'm looking back and, and pretty grateful for the way that it helps you grow as a goaltender. 
you know, all the way up. Well, it's uh, it's great to hear, and I think it's a it's a model that you know some organizations have emulated, but clearly the Kings are among the leaders, and I, I kind of wish maybe a few more organizations would see the value <laughs> in it. Um, yeah. Hey, one actually one last one, and Millard's probably going to laugh his ass off when he hears this because I'm famous for one last one. Other guys, um, just you know, we, we I had the focus here leading you down the path, but there's probably other guys along the way, Cal, that that helped you out. You had mentioned. Jeff Jackson going to the network camps. And I remember when we met for the first time was actually at a camp with Mike Valley and Alex Ald and Pasco Valana here in Vancouver. So um, your dad, even what role he played in coaching. Are there other guys along the way that maybe the way I've guided this hasn't allowed you to thank guys who have played a role and whether it's between the years or between the pipes over the years, helping get you to this stage. You know, like I said, obviously the LA guys, like we've gone into, um, you know, Jeff Jackson, again, I mean, he, he was a guy that is kind of underrated, I guess, in the goalie community and, and what he's done. And, um, Brian Mahoney Wilson, I had him for my, uh, sophomore year at Notre Dame. He was kind of a guy that really probably took my technical game to a new level. Um, you know, he's a student of the game. He's very analytical and, and we still share a great relationship. I was obviously disappointed when he, when he got to the opportunity with the Red Wings, but, um, was extremely happy for him. Um, you know, he was huge, you know, my coach in Waterloo, uh, PK O'Hanley, he wasn't, he, he was a goalie himself, but another guy that put a lot of emphasis on being able to win games when it mattered. And, and I think that was something that maybe not the technical side, but the game management side, he was big for me. Greg Nemenko, uh, was my coach, um, in, in minor hockey with Chicago Young Americans. Um, Zach Sickage, he, he runs pro hybrid training in Minneapolis. Yeah, he was actually probably my first goalie coach when I was about 13 or 14. And um, he was just starting out as well. I think he had just retired. And um, so I've had a I've had a long relationship with him. Um, and so I'm always happy to see kind of how well he's grown his business. And, and he's a guy that, um, you know, was kind of always in my corner from day one. And again, started, you know, a lot of emphasis on skating. Um, which is something that I've kind of carried with me all along. I mean, you probably have some advice for young kids who, this is one thing, they get tossed around sometimes, different coaches in short order, whether it's, you know, parents taking them to different camps. Just, what, what's, mm-hmm. what advice would you give them? Just try and pick up as much as you can and choose what fits. That seems to be the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I guess maybe coming up, uh, one of the things that, you know, goalie coaches do is they can maybe try and teach the techniques that, guys at the upper levels are working on. I mean, you know, I don't know if a kid that's, you know, eight to 12 years old needs to be, you know, doing a reverse VH or something like that. I think, I think there's gotta be a lot more emphasis on, you know, skating fundamentals, kind of goaltending fundamentals, their pushes. Um, And I think that's something that if you just drill that nonstop, you know, you have the ability to add those different techniques, whether it's a reverse VH or bump outs or anything you know, extra like that. If you have kind of a solid foundation of skating, um, I think that just helps you pick up, you know, different techniques, you know, quicker than whether you're trying to learn them when you're eight years old. And so I, I would say that was something that really worked for me. And, you know, like I said, that just having a foundation of really strong skating, I don't think, you know, could hurt you in any way. And if you look at the, you know, the best NHL goaltenders, I don't think you can look around and say those guys are bad skaters at all. It's usually the best skaters are the best goalies. And so I think that's probably something that uh, I would tell those people. 
And absolutely essential to today's game with all the East-West that's going on. And and interestingly enough, as I as I compiled those clips uh, for pro reads, I couldn't help but notice how many times you beat plays on your skate. So that's great advice. Cal, thank you very much for, didn't plan on it being this much time, but thank you for spending it because I know our audience is going to absolutely love hearing from you. There's some great advice in there, especially the young goalies and goalie parents. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And, and um, yeah, there's a lot of people that have helped me kind of get to where I'm at so far. So it's. Uh, a big thank you to them and thank you for uh, for having me on. Well done. Uh, a fresh voice in the goaltending world, Cal Peterson, uh, part of that long string of uh, goaltenders that have come out of the Los Angeles King system. Uh, Dusty Emu, uh, who we talked to, and, uh, and Bill Ranford, who has also been on this podcast, have really cranked them out uh, over the years. Uh, so Cal Peterson following uh, along in that string. I, I love the story, Woody, about uh, about sticks, like coming across right-handed goalie sticks and just buying them up because you never knew when you were going to be able to see your next one. Didn't even really seem to matter what the paddle length was, just if they were they're right-handed shooting, go for it. Yeah, I got to admit, Darren, I never even thought of that. I obviously had talked to some, some right-catching goalies, and I never know, like, writing the story, do you call them lefties? Because not every right-catching goalie is a lefty. Like a lot of the goalies that right. I quoted talk to them as themselves as, as southpaws, and yet I know goaltenders that are right-handed that, that play that way. So ne- anyways, I never thought of the stick angle. I was so obsessed with the glove and having the right glove as I was questioning these guys. I never even thought about the stick, so I thought that was really interesting from Cal. One more thing I just wanted to, to add on there. Um, full credit and much love to Dusty Emu, who we had on last week, and Billy Ranford, who had been in touch, who has been on the podcast before and been in touch with lately. Um, but when Dusty moved on, don't forget Matt Miller. You got to give uh, Matt some credit for the job he's done this year, sort of following in some pretty tough footsteps behind Dusty as the new development coach with the LA Kings. He's a guy we've worked with on the ice up at Net360 camps a couple summers ago um, with that crew. So I wanted to make sure he got some love too. Uh, you know, talking and Hutch, uh, you chime in here uh, about goaltenders and using uh, right-handed sticks, and they might be a lefty or vice versa. Cujo was a right-handed shooting uh, goaltender, but uh, but was a left-handed catching goaltender, and we like we don't mm-hmm. see guys flipping the puck over or stick over uh, anymore, and that used to be almost a standard case. No, I don't know that you have enough time to pull that off very often. I, you know, as as you were talking about that, <laughs> I came to to mind. Uh, I know a few goaltenders who catch with their left hand on the baseball field and their right hand on the ice as goaltenders. And I also noticed online when Kevin's article got shared around, there's actually a lot of people out there like that. Not that I'm curious as to where that comes from. I, I know that Greg Millen told me for him, it was a, uh, a coach way back when he was a kid. He actually told me in a quick email and, and I didn't get it into my original uh, NHL article just because it, the context, there's just space, right? But that he had a coach, he, he, he would go both ways at times, different times in his minor hockey career, left catching and right catching, hmm. which I thought was curious. But a coach convinced him to stick with right catching um, because he was a right-handed shot and he felt like his puck handling was better if he had the glove on the right and that was his bottom sure. hand. So uh, maybe that plays a role in it. It's interesting not to um, just give a little love to... Um, the Stick to Hockey podcast with a fellow goaltender who's now working for the F- Flyers, uh, Jason Murdithus, who I probably just butchered his name. 
but he actually had Brian Boucher on this week, and they were talking about the same thing where hmm. in terms of how he handled the puck and naturally being a righty when he shot the puck, but catching as a goalie with his left hand. So maybe we'll have to check in with Brian Boucher about that as well. So Millen could catch with both hands? Yeah, uh, well, he said in the email, again, it was just a quick back and forth. He had a lot going on, but just that that at some point in his minor hockey career, he caught with both hands at different points where, where he had a glove on with, with both hands before finally switching mm-hmm. over to the right. And, you know, I think there's, there's probably, you know, a lot more of this. There's probably a lot of unique stories um, in the background for a lot of these guys about how they come to that decision. And so, I mean, it's fascinating because at the end of the day, I was shocked. I, I went into this looking for a fun story about what it's like to have two right catching goaltenders with the Colorado Avalanche because it's so rare. And then started talking with Michael Hutchison about just how rare it was. And then I looked and I did the math and it's like historic lows over the past three seasons in terms of yeah. the amount of goalies. And Incredible. The one theory that never made my article that I wondered about, and nobody ever felt this way. None of the pros I talked to felt like this was the case. But I know in minor hockey, I see guys get cut, um, flushed down a house early because I've been part of that process. Actually, what turned me off the evaluation process and said I'd never do it again was, you know, this kid showed up in gear that was mismatched, um, didn't look like a goalie, nothing was tucked in. Like the other kids at clearly goalie school, refined. This kid had so much talent and it was the first one to get cut despite pointing out all that talent because he just quote unquote didn't look like a goalie. And I've certainly heard that before from other coaches that guys who catch with the other hand, it just doesn't look right. And I wonder if there's a point where young kids do get cut prematurely. And I'm not saying that's the big reason, but where it just doesn't look the same. It doesn't look what we're used to. And we may be a little quicker on the trigger finger in terms of cutting a kid at a young age because he catches mm-hmm. with that hand. Well, it does look odd. Oh, it's like, flat it does out look wrong, different, but... <laughs> especially in, in, and more well, so now. Ke- yeah. Kevin, I, I know you and I spoke about this, but Darren, I had a conversation with a coach, not a goaltending coach, but a head coach who was watching a, another team practice and said, uh, so um, I'd take that kid. Do you agree? And I said, mm, no, not necessarily. Well, I'd take that kid because he's got the best gear. I said, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, the kid with the best gear, I figure his parents probably support him the most, so he's going to get the most training away from here. So I want that kid. Yeah, and wow. how sad is that for, because obviously not every, you've got some incredibly supportive parents out there that can't afford to buy the new gear every year. Um, well, that's a much well, deeper hey, issue hmm. than just the initial ignorance of of catching with the Well, uh, the and let's right be honest. Hand. I have all the new gear in the world, and I look like crap every time I take <laughs> to the ice. So it's it's not a definitely not a fast. It really firm makes you role. stand out if you've got the good gear and you can't use it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're st- you're still dumb, so dumb yeah, you don't wear a dangler. Too. Um, I'm going to give you guys Ooh. my playoff format uh, before we go. This is just a quick hitter, and uh, and then we'll say goodbye. But uh, coming out of the pause, whenever that is, uh, I don't anticipate there will be a regular season. So what I'm proposing is uh, four pools of five teams. Each division gets five teams in the playoffs, and you play an initial round robin, which gets you up and running. And by way of that five-team round robin, after the pause, you eliminate one team, which creates a 16-team field. And you get into your more traditional playoff format. Uh, the first two rounds are best of five. The conference final and the championship series is uh, Stanley Cup final is a best of seven. But uh, it lets teams uh, 
get into it by way of a round robin. Maybe you hold that in a non-playoff team, qualifying team um, uh, city. But it gets teams like Winnipeg that might be in in one situation and out in the uh, points percentage uh, basis or vice versa. There's, there's other clubs that are on the bubble. Uh, gets more teams uh, involved. What do you think? I'm all for anything that's a little bit different. I think it would be really exciting to mix things up for sure. And uh, do you really think the league could agree on who would go in each of those five-team pools? Or is that too cynical of me? You're, you go by division. Okay. Uh, so five teams from the Central, five teams from the Pacific, five teams right. uh, Metropolitan, okay, five teams so Atlantic. So you would in. have Montreal in the playoffs with 71 points, or at least in the round robin of the Atlantic with 71 points, and the New York Islanders not getting to play with 80. Hey, I'm not saying it's perfect, <laughs> and, and I'm, open, I'm open to adjustments. Maybe you do maybe, maybe take, you more do teams. take uh, maybe just t- a, or. Maybe from, take from the top ten in the in the conference. No, no, no. I love the idea, yeah. actually, Darren. I just I knew there was like this was going to be the year where we had that discrepancy to the point where a team with more wouldn't get like a team wouldn't make the playoffs as the wild card. Yeah. Um, and a team in another division, uh, you know, like like the Atlantic, there was a chance they could get in as the third seed with less points than the wild card out of the Metro. So this was a problem either way. Um, but I do love the concept of. Because you've heard from these players in these video calls. You can't just start the playoffs on day one. You need some way of getting into it. Right. Um, and that makes a ton of sense. I don't know how the other 11 teams that aren't involved at all feel about it. But that's just, just the reality. It is a new reality. And if, if you weren't in the top 30, then totally. and, and you think it should, should go beyond that, we should probably be talking about planes every year. Uh, yeah, we may get there as well, but, but a round robin would be fascinating. You could play four games in one day and just have them staggered and, uh, and flip it around and, and only one team's eliminated by that round robin. So there is importance on on that coming out. Do you do something for the non-qualifying cities? Uh, I mean, you you can say what you want about the team didn't qualify, but the fan bases here have lost hockey for a long time and deserve something. That's where I put those tournaments, those round robin tournaments. I put the, uh, the round that in one of those, uh, those Mm non-qualifying cities like i'm not saying i mean detroit's already eliminated uh so there's no uh crying over that but maybe detroit gets to host one of those like uh like an ncaa regional tournament i think they should just i don't know just thought i'd forget about the 11 teams but just send all of their goaltenders here to vancouver and we can run some camps courtesy of ingoal media let's Let's do that that. we're in uh i'm uh i'm all for it uh great content as always uh cal was really cool to listen to and uh and that plug for ingoal magazine that was that was awesome with the with the knee pads. That was amazing. Uh, when you said what what you did about uh, ripping that and and posting it, I was like, "Good on you, Mark." <laughs> There's a marketer in Woody somewhere. Yeah, and uh, hey, uh, to continue on that marketing theme, obviously we've had a lot of new content up in Ingle Premium. Cal was our first technological. Uh, I was going to say victim, but guinea pig uh, for Pro Reads, mm. where we walk through video with him over a Zoom conference call. Uh, Hutch has already produced the first pro reads. I thought it went really well and it's opened the door for us now to do others with other guys. I got Jake Allen on cue for next week. Um, so for the, for readers of Ingle premium that really like, uh, the pro reads where we have an NHL goalie watch tape with us and walk us through his reads and his save selections on certain saves and certain plays, we're going to be able to, I'm proud to say we're going to be able to continue that full force here during the NHL pause. In some ways, to be honest, it's almost easier than trying to drag all the equipment to the rink. And Cal was so gracious with his time uh, for starters 
but just so good. You can see why this kid is such a good goalie. The reads and and the thought process behind it and just the way he analyzes the play. Uh, it was a real pleasure to listen to and we'll be able to First one's up for Ingle Premium subscribers, and there's more coming uh, as Hutch gets cutting into the video here, and and more coming from other goalies too. So I'm, I, I'm really happy about that. I think Pro Reads has been big for us, and we're going to be able to keep it going here. I, uh, I I I did love that one that we just did with Cal Kevin, and I've I've loved all of them because every single goaltender who comes on seems to find a different twist on it, and quite often one I didn't expect to see, and and this one was I knew this would happen because of the the pre scout. Uh, that Bill Ranford did with me before the game. And and so he remembered what he'd been told was a tendency and and he talks in the video about it. I, I can't stop laughing. People who don't actually see this on video, who can't hear, don't realize that when one of us wants to break in, we have this little symbol where we hold two fingers up almost like we've got, I don't know, but a dime between them. I just, just got a little, a little bit. bit to answer. Yeah. Yeah. And Woody always holds up those, I've just got a little bit, but really he should be stretching his arms out as far as possible. I just want to interject with... <laughs> Well, that's not. Anyway, I got to jump in. Um, but with uh, with Cal, um, I loved like in that. For those that haven't seen it, go check it out. Our, our premium subscribers, if you don't, hey, subscribe. Uh, we've got about half the NHL goalie coaches now subscribed to Angle Premium. We'll, we'll run that list out shortly. Um, but in that sequence, uh, Gino Jenny Malkin has two opportunities on a one T, and one of them he passes down low, and the other one he lets fly. And to hear Cal walk us through the differences that allow him to know when that one T is coming, not just based on how Malkin has set himself up and where the pass goes, but based on what other guys are doing in the zone is worth the price of admission all on its own. So thanks to Cal for taking the time because between the interview and the video, we were well over an hour. And as I told him at the end, not just from us, but from our readers, I know they're going to appreciate it. It's been the story of the winter for Ingle Radio, the podcast, uh, Pro Reads, uh, and that uh, ascension in Ingle Premium. Uh, subscribe right now. You will not be disappointed. Uh, we know life is uh, taking a left turn for all of us. Stay vigilant, stay healthy, stay responsible uh, through this course. Uh, it's been a while, and we've got a while to go Yeah, But during COVID crisis, spend it in the crease. We'll be happy to uh, stand with you as we go through this together.